thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted to have you with me for today's episode. I think you will find it very enlightening, maybe um, actually by the end a little infuriating, when you understand what the United States Supreme Court has been doing over the last almost 50 years to take away from the citizens of the states the ability to regulate and to address issues related to, in particular, human sexuality, such as abortion, such as sodomy, such as marriage, and soon the issue of the relationship between parent and child. Now, you'll recall that last week I focused on the Ninth Amendment as the amendment that in some ways summarizes and embodies our form of government by making it very clear that the powers of the federal government are limited. That was the purpose of the Bill of Rights, to make clear the limitations on the powers of the federal government not so much to grant us rights, but as to make sure that the rights that were enumerated in the Bill of Rights were reserved to us and protected from encroachment and abuse by the federal government's expansive exercise of the limited delegated powers it was given. You'll recall specifically that we noted that the common law said that individuals were in possession of three fundamental rights because they are creations of God, accountable to God for their personal security, meaning their life, their health, their bodies, their limbs, and their reputations, their liberty, and their property. Those were the three fundamental rights at at common law, and we noted that the Ninth Amendment states that not only are these first eight rights that are enumerated not to be abused, limited, denied, or disparaged by the exercise of powers by the federal government, but that the people retained other rights, specifically the three absolute rights at common law. We noted that nowhere in the Bill of Rights or in the Constitution's main text does it ever say that persons have a right to personal security, to life, to liberty, or to property. Those rights are are retained by the people, and therefore, under the Tenth Amendment, since no authority over those has been delegated to the federal government, the power to protect those rights was retained by the people or their states. That's how the Ninth and the Tenth Amendments work together. So if that's the case, you have to wonder how is it that the 14th Amendment has been interpreted to remove from the states the power to control medical practices within the borders of the state whereby doctors kill an unborn person. You may wonder how is it in the 14th Amendment that the states no longer have the power to 
put forward its own understanding of what it means to be married and the nature of the marital relationship. Where did the rights of a man and woman to marry and to have their rights and duties recognized and enforced and protected by the state governments, where, 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 did, where did that right go if it's retained by the people? And the people in the states have the power to protect those rights. How did we lose them? Well, it's a judicial sleight of hand is the nicest thing that I can call it, by the United States Supreme Court, whereby they, in my opinion, abuse the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. So let me talk for just a moment now about the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment, as you probably know, was one of the three Civil War amendments, amendments adopted after the Civil War, the 13th abolishing slavery, the 14th, which I'll talk about in a moment, and the 15th dealing with voting rights. Now, with respect to the 14th Amendment, it did a few things that changed the nature of the relationship between the states and the federal government. The first thing it did is it said that if you are born or naturalized in the United States, then you are a United States citizen. That was doing away with the Supreme Court's pre-Civil War decision in Dred Scott versus Sanford where they said you might be a citizen of a state but because slaves and their ancestors were considered inferior beings they could have never been understood to fall within the concept or the category of citizens of the United States. So that part of the 14th Amendment in Section 1 overruled effectively the Dred Scott decision. The second thing that it does is it says that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Now that clause was interpreted by the United States Supreme Court a few years after its adoption and it was given a very narrow interpretation by the Supreme Court and is essentially ineffective, I guess you could say, with respect to the matters of abortion, marriage, and so on and so forth. So we'll go on now to the two clauses that are most important relative to how the states have lost authority over certain fundamental matters related to, for example, human sexuality. Specifically, there's a provision in the 14th Amendment that says no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Now note, it is not enumerating life, liberty, or property as a fundamental right that is being given by the 14th Amendment. It is simply making sure that states don't deny or take away someone's right to life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The enumerated right here is to due process of law. Now due process of law has uh, two components to it. First, you can't lose your life, liberty, or property unless you've committed some wrong, which is what the purpose of the reference to law is. The law says, for instance, you can't steal or trespass on your neighbor's property. The due process is the requirement that there be a fundamentally fair procedure by which it's determined that you did actually do the wrong, violate the law, before your life, liberty, or property can be diminished, that you could be fined or you could go to jail. And lastly, the 14th Amendment says that a state cannot deprive a person of equal protection 
of the law. So the, the key thing for us to focus on here, really, is the enumerated right to due process of law. Now, if you've followed me so far, and I'm trying to speak slowly because I know this is a lot of information to hold in your head while you're just listening to a podcast, is you have to be saying, well, okay, so the enumerated right in the 14th Amendment is to due process of law, and when the Supreme Court holds that a law prohibiting a doctor from killing a baby violates due process of law, how is that? It would seem like, you know, just off the top of your head, you'd think, well, how is the baby uh, as a person uh, provided any due process of law? What, what wrong did the baby commit? What law did the baby violate? And how is it proved that it committed any wrong? It's in the womb. So, so how is it that this enumerated requirement of due process of law came to stand for the abolition of state laws protecting the unborn's life, prohibiting doctors from performing abortions? Well, here's what the Supreme Court has done. The Supreme Court has taken the due process of law requirement and said that there is a substantive aspect to it. Now, you would naturally want to ask, well, what limits the substantive aspect of the due process of law requirement? And that's a great question. The fact of the matter is, uh, in the Obergefell decision regarding same-sex marriage, Justice Alito, in his dissent, said, it's clear after decades now the court is unwilling to restrain its abuse of its powers. Originally, the court would say things like, well, whatever policy it is that we're going to inject substantively in the due process of law requirement must be part of our sense of ordered liberty, our history and our traditions. But, you know, abortion isn't a part of our history or part of our sense of ordered liberty, nor is same-sex marriage, nor is homosexual sodomy. So how did those become substantive aspects of the due process of law requirement? Well, here's how it is. The court has taken the word liberty in the due process clause, that you can't lose your life, your liberty, or your property without due process of law. They've taken the word liberty and infused it with whatever liberty they think a person ought to have. And, and it should be very clear then that essentially the court is infusing into the Constitution policy decisions. It's trying to make law. It's trying to do what the legislature should do when it comes to saying what kinds of liberties we should or should not allow in our society and, and frustrating the very idea that in deciding what those liberties ought to be, it should be made by the laws of the people pursuant to their constitution. This is the court rewriting the constitution. This is the court imposing or trying to impose on the states and on the representatives of the people in the states its own policy preferences in regard to, for example, medical practices in the state concerning abortion. That's how it it gets there. But, but here is the real problem. This is what to me is so infuriating. As you'll know from previous episodes, the Supreme Court has said 
that the Constitution must be understood to have been written in the language of the common law and must be interpreted in light of its history. And the court looks at, at the common law all the time to help determine the meaning of words and phrases in the Constitution. But when it came to the matter of abortion, when it comes to the matter of human sexuality and all the things that flow from it, such as homosexual sodomy and marriage and parent-child relationships, the court said, no, we're, we're, we're not going to interpret the word liberty according to its common law meaning because its common law meaning was simply the right to move around, to go from one place to another without prior restraints uh, by other individuals or uh, restraints from the government uh, that are imposed without due process of law. Well, as you can see, if the court were to to say there's a substantive element to due process of law, and it must be a substantive element related to the word liberty, if liberty were given its common law meaning, it would have nothing to do with abortion, homosexual, sodomy, or, or marriage, or same-sex marriage, for sure. That's just not what liberty at common law meant. So the court looks at the common law to define the words and phrases in the Constitution when it wants to and ignores it when it wants to. That is arbitrary law and that is depotism. That is tyranny. To take a word in the Constitution, divorce it from its original intended meaning, and then infuse it with whatever policy preferences five people on the Supreme Court think are best is wrong. It is a violation of the Ninth Amendment because the Ninth Amendment says these other rights, these rights to life, liberty, and property, to personal security, which, of course, I've said was uh, life and limb and body and health and reputation, for the Supreme Court to then essentially take those issues away from the people and their representatives in the states, which is what the Ninth and the Tenth Amendment would say, is for the federal government to expand its authorities when the whole purpose of the Bill of Rights was to limit the federal government's responsibilities and the 14th Amendment was not expanding the powers of the federal government but limiting the powers of the state government only in very specific regards. That you can't take away somebody's life, liberty, or property without due process of law or without equal protection of the laws. And none of that is violated by a law saying that doctors cannot perform abortions or by a law that says the government will issue marriage licenses only to two people of the opposite sex. N none of that infringes upon the liberty of a person to move around. You see how the Supreme Court has essentially asserted a power it does not have to add a substantive component to a procedural enumerated requirement, due process of law, and then divorced the word liberty within that clause from its common law meaning to infuse into it whatever liberties it thinks that the autonomous individual ought to have. And that's what the Supreme Court has done. And sadly, because our state officials do not understand the limited nature of the federal powers, they have allowed these usurpations of state authority to go unchecked. We're going to talk about that more in next week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I hope you will join me for that episode.
I look forward to being with you again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.